Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is another MCO and transmission. Okay. Um, I'm going to go ahead and get started. Uh, everybody, welcome to the Dharmadors with your host. MC Owens. Uh, so this is sort of the, the, the beginning of something, but it, uh, like I've said, even though we changed the name to the Dharma Doors, doing the same thing we always do. We're talking about sutras. Um, I think I probably will say something about this idea of the Dharma Doors to kick us off. <clears throat> um, basically, in, in, in Buddhism, they have this idea that there's these 84,000 Dharma Doors, entryways to the teachings. There's a lot of different interpretations of this Dharma Prayaya, Dharma door. Um, the Buddhists talk about how there's 84,000 different afflictions of the mind, and therefore the Buddha gave 84,000 different teachings. They talk about how there's 84,000 different types of people in the world, and therefore there's 84,000 different teachings for those 84,000 different types. Um, there's just a lot of different ways that Buddhists talk about Dharma doors. Sometimes they talk about them as literally that door to a Dharma center. Or, in other words, a, a monastery or a temple, the doors are considered a Dharma door to the Dharma. Um, and all of those are great understandings of Dharma doors. The idea remains the same, though. <clears throat> a lot of different people in the world. A lot of different karmic starting points. A lot of different afflictions of the mind. And so the Buddha is said to have given 84,000 different teachings, 84,000 different sutras, one for each of us in a way. Kind of an idea. So that's the general gist of what a Dharma door is. It's a, a specific teaching of the Buddha that might uh, pertain to a specific mental affliction, or it's just a specific text, a sutra. The sutra, the Dharma door that we're going to enter tonight, is from the Ratnakuta Sutra, the Maharatnakuta Sutra, which if you've been coming to these classes or listening to these classes, you know that the Ratnakuta Sutra is actually a collection of sutras. This uh, Ratnakuta is a pile or a heap of jewels, a mound of jewels. And so what they talk about in Buddhism too is that a little nugget of dharmic truth is a jewel, so not a jewel like you would wear on a ring or something, but a, a kind of a jewel of the mind. And so they refer to this collection of sutras as a, as a pile of jewels, all these sutras, right? And there's 49 sutras in this collection. We're going to be reading number 35. But I really quickly, because some people are interested in this, I wanted to go over quickly what not the sutra that we're reading, but <clears throat> where does this come from? You know, C.C. Uh, Chang and company. Wh where, you know, they translated it, but where are they translated from? Like, how does this work? Because if you're, if you're like me, you don't trust anybody. You don't trust anything. Like, I'm a scholar, so I don't take anything at face value. I'm going to want to know what the source was, what the original source is, what's the manuscript, you know, I want to know that's the kind of person I am. And so if you're that kind of person, here we are on our timeline, 2020, San Francisco Dharma Collective and Company. And we're reading C.C. <clears throat> Chong and Company because he was a scholar who had a team of student translators working with him. 
1976, they translated most but not all of the Ratnakuta Sutra, the pile of jewels. All right, so that happened in 1976. But what did they use to translate? So C.C. Uh, Chang, Chinese guy, translating from Chinese. But what did he, what was he translating from? Well, everybody should know that in the 20s, it actually started in the 19, early, early 20th century, but in 1924, they finished and published a, a team, a large team of Japanese scholars got together, and what they did was, is they took from <clears throat> the Chinese, from the Tibetan, from the Korean, all these cultures had amassed over thousands of years, had amassed various what are called canons, Buddhist canons, collections of sutras. And I'm not talking about a, a collection like this. I'm talking about all of them. That's what a canon is, the whole collection. And so over the centuries and millennia, the Chinese had, had accumulated various canons, versions of the canon, meaning all of the sutras, the old Theravada sutras, the crazy Mahayana sutras, the tantric Vajrayana sutras, the Chinese during the Ming dynasty, and others, but the Ming dynasty Chinese canon is renowned. There's a Tibetan canon that's renowned. There's a Korean canon that's renowned. And of all of those, there's multiple versions of them. Everybody with me on this? And so in the 20s, this team of scholars got together and they laid out all the versions. So the sutra we're doing tonight, the demonstration of the inconceivable state of Buddhahood, this sutra had uh, a, a Ming Dynasty version, it had a Tibetan version, it had a Korean version, it actually had multiple Chinese versions. And these Japanese scholars, they laid them all out. All the different versions, and they noticed, oh, this word, different here, this word's different there. And the, I mean, the world owes this group a huge debt of gratitude because they went through all of these and they produced an official Buddhist canon. Official versions of all of them where they meticulously went through, again, every version and they were like line by line, like what, what, it, it's weird, what, what's he saying over here? And it's like, well, over here and over here and over here he's saying this, so, so they did their homework. So this is, um, I mean, all of the texts in here are in, I, I guess you'd call it Chinese. It's hard because Japanese and Chinese at a certain point are the same language, kind of. So, but it's character-based, pictographed, kanji, hanzi-based. Yeah, Jenny. Who, who are they? This team of Japanese scholars. Um, so, like, that's a team that you would be on. Oh, sure. I mean, I would have... Yeah, and I've been on similar teams. Nothing with that uh, great of a goal. I've been on little teams that have translated one sutra. These guys were, in effect... They weren't translating them, of course, because these are Japanese guys and gals that read ch Chinese characters. They read han Hanza or Kanji. And so they're actually just going through a language that they're familiar with and creating these definitive Chinese versions that again are based on Tibetan versions, Korean versions, and Chinese versions that had all cre kind of been formulated over the centuries and the millennia. 
Are they with me? Yeah. So, so there's no Theravada, this is all Mahayana. <clears throat> what you need to know is that the Taisho Shinshu Daizokyo, which is the name of this, it's a hundred volumes. Each volume is like that thick with Bible thin pages, pages so thin you, know, thin you can see through them. And the print is like you basically need the magnifying glass to see it. So it's a hundred volumes, big, thick volumes, you know, dense. And in this uh, definitive hundred volume canon, the first few volumes are dedicated to what are called the Agamas or the Nikayas. It's important to know that when Buddhism first came to China, uh, right around this magical year zero that doesn't exist, more or less, Buddhism came to China shortly before zero or shortly after zero. If we understand that the Buddha was 500 BC, this is 500 years of, that's a long time. Mahayana rose, the Vajrayana kind of got started and all of that. So when Buddhism enters China, they get it all lock, stock, and barrel. They don't know Theravada from Mahayana from Vajrayana. They're, they were literally like, whoa, over here he's telling us to do meditation. He's talking about these skandhas things, but over here he's talking about that. And it actually took, you know, basically until this guy Kumarajiva, so about 400 years, for them to figure out what this stuff was even saying. Kumar Jiva was an immigrant to China? Yeah. Okay, yeah. I he remember. was from Central Asia, and he spoke all kinds of languages. All right, but we're getting ahead of it. Yeah. So the Chinese, this canon is everything. Everything. The Pali stuff, but it had come to China and been translated into Chinese and all of that. So of the, this Taisho Shinshu Taizokyo, in it is our... Maharatnakuta Sutra, among all the others, right? This is all of them. And the sutra that we're doing tonight, which is from this collection, is in this sutra called The Demonstration of the Inconceivable State of Buddhahood. I'm going to talk about what its title actually is in a minute, but this sutra that we're going to read tonight and the entire Ratnakuta Sutra, all 49 of them, so all 49 of the sutras, a Indian monk, not Chinese, an Indian monk named Bodhiruchi, he came to China in around 700, 690 something, and over a period of 15, 20 years, he translated all kinds of stuff. He translated the Amitabha Sutra, he translated, I mean, he translated a lot, and he translated the Ratnakuta Sutra, all 49. And actually what he did was, is he went through all these other translations. And he was like, that's a bad translation. I'm going to redo that one. That's a good translation. We'll keep this one. There's never been a Chinese translation of the whatever sutra. Well, let's do one. And so he used either some stuff that had already been translated, some quasi-retranslated stuff, or some freshly translated stuff. So the sutra we're reading tonight was translated into Chinese from Sanskrit by Bodhiruchi in 713 AD, all right? This is the first uh, uh, historical appearance of the sutra we're reading, 713. So there's that. And, you know, if you're looking at this timeline on the whiteboard here and you're thinking, wow, 
the Buddha was around 500 BC. Uh, the Sutra reading tonight is from 700 AD? That's a long time. Well, it is, but you should know that the earliest reference to the Ratnakuta Sutra and its contents was in 402 because they wanted Kumarajiva to translate it. Because Kumarajiva was this uh, translator savant, genius guy from Central Asia, and he translated the Lotus Sutra, the Malakirti Sutra, Diamond Sutra. He translated all of them, and they were like, dude, you should translate the Ratnakuta Sutra. And he was like, I don't know, it's a, it's a lot of sutras, maybe, maybe not. There was a guy in the mid-600s that they were like, yo, you should translate the Maharatnakutta Sutra. He was like, nah, and there's a, a story that he translated one line and then like died and stuff. <laughs> so, so we know there are references to these sutras and the sutra reading type. There are references that go as far back as 400. But the actual, like if you were like me and you're like, but what's the earliest, earliest, earliest? 713 AD. But of course, this is a sutra. So it's, it presents itself as events that took place in 500 BC in India. All right? Well, if we have fun tonight in reading this sutra, you may understand why it doesn't matter. In other words, everything that I just gave you was the sort of like a starting point for a academic Western mind of like, where did this sutra come from? You know, who translated into what? What was the original language? Da, da, da. So that's the little timeline of all of this. Any questions about that presentation of history? Um, but, I mean, there's, other, there's probably other indications about like when it came from, like what it references, and sort of there's that top scholarship to figure out like it was probably around. Yep. Or we don't want to get into that. No, he's that's what this class is, right? Well, no, 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 I'm ditching this. I'm ditching the history. But, yeah. So. But it's somewhere no, no. five hundred years after. Yeah. That. So the reason this stuff is fun because scholarship is like detective work. There's like forensics involved. Like it's a certain type of forensics because it's like linguistic and you're looking at poetry and certain the way languages and so but that same kind of forensics is fun to like dig and find earliest references and so i just wanted to lay out what are some of these that's it uh there's a great if, any, if you care there's a great little article here on the Matna, the ratnakuta sutra it's just like four or five pages and it's basically everything we know about this thing this thing appears kind of out of nowhere there's one very important uh thing that i want to tell you about though in uh, around 500, so in between Bodoricci translating it and the first reference to it by Kumar Jiva in 400, around 500 there was another monk named Nyanarata. I want to say his name was Nyanarata, but something like that. Don't quote me on that. But he came to China and he told the Chinese that in Central Asia, where he was from, where Kumarajiva was from as well, in Central Asia, he said, oh yeah, there's 10, um, school isn't the right word, but he described in Pakistan, Afghanistan, and parts of Central Asia, he described there being these 10 regional schools of Buddhism, kind of, and they were defined by their collection of sutras. And so if you've heard of the Avatamsaka Sutra, the Flower Garland Sutra, 
he lists that as a region and like, oh yeah, that's their collection of sutras. And over here they use the Lotus Sutra and over here they use this collection and over here they use this collection. And in this region, they used this collection. So that's two things we kind of now are interested in. The, the language translation of this and how it got translated from Sanskrit into Chinese, Chinese into English, and now we're doing a new English one, right, tonight. But this guy was talking about how way back, who knows when, he was talking about this sutra representing a little particular Buddhist community or culture in Central Asia. And so it's interesting to consider these collections as like representative of a, of a group, of a, what would be maybe called a church or something like that. So just keep that in mind. Any questions? Where is that region? It was a broad region of northern Pakistan, Central Asia. That whole, I mean, in Central Asia is huge, but yeah. But that span of space between China and India, that whole, yeah. Okay, so if you've done any of the other Ratnakuta Sutras with me, you will know that C.C. Chang and company does this thing where they give the sutras titles that aren't really the title of the sutra, but it's not a bad title. A better title, actually, is that this is Manjushri, Bodhisattva Manjushri's demonstration of the inconceivable state of Buddhahood. That's what happens. But the sutra is actually called the Shanta Tianzajing, or the Saguna Deva Sutra. And Saguna is a god, a heavenly being. And his name, Suguna. Um, guna is like if you know about the gunas in yoga, tamasic, rajic, and sattvic. That's a guna. And Buddhas talk about all kinds of gunas. They don't just have three gunas. They talk about gunas all night. And so this god, his name is Suguna, the beautiful guna, beautiful virtue deva. So the sutra is actually for his benefit or her benefit. We're not really sure. And that's the real title of it. But most people don't know who Saguna Deva was. And so the demonstration of the inconceivable state of Buddhahood is a little more exciting. So that's the title. Anytime you do sutras, you always, there's a way you do this. You say the title. You say what the title means. Then we go first line. Yeah? Everybody good with the title? Everybody good with where we're at? What's going on? Cool. So this sutra, just a couple of words before we dive in. If you had been coming to all of my classes last month, I did a lot of teaching last month here, all on these formless realms, these really deep states of meditation that Buddhists talk about. The realm of infinite space, infinite consciousness, infinite nothingness, the realm of neither perception nor non-perception. And what's happening tonight with this sutra is that if you've been coming all last month, what's interesting is that all of that talk about the formless realms, this is like the Theravada tradition starts off and they're like talking about, you know, the body and the the mind and all this stuff and there's a way in which when you get to the limit literally the limit of perception if you get to the outermost edges of the Theravada tradition 
they're talking about these formless realms and all of that, right? But that's like the fringe edge of Theravada. That's where we start tonight. That's like the foundation. And that doesn't mean you had to have come for all of last week. It's just if you were, I just want you to know that that's the springboard of where we start. It's not where we're headed. It's where we're beginning. So there's that. Um, So a lot of the ideas might sound familiar, but they're going to be with this new kind of Saguna Deva Manjushri Bodhisattva Mahayana twist to it. All right. Um, I guess I'll just go ahead and do what I usually do, which is read until I feel like everybody's really confused. (laughs) And then that's how we do it. Oh, and last week I didn't record. It was so funny. Last week I gave this whole hour and a half long talk about non-attachment, right? And then at the end of the talk, I look over and I, I immediately, I immediately had to let it go. Talk about the practice. Like, how could I give an hour and a half talk and then be all worked up about having not hit record? But the wisdom is to try not to do it. Okay. So sit back, relax. It gets confusing quick. So, <laughs> Thus have I heard. Once the Buddha was dwelling in the garden of Anatha Pindika in the Jetta Grove near Shravasti, accompanied by 1,000 monks, 10,000 bodhisattva mahasattvas, and many gods of the realm of desire and gods of the realm of form. At that time, Bodhisattva Mahasattva Manjushri, the crown prince of the Dharma, the Bodhisattva of Wisdom, and the god Saguna were both present among the assembly. The world-honored one, the Buddha, told Manjushri, you should explain the profound state of Buddhahood for the celestial beings and the Bodhisattvas of this assembly. Manjushri said to the Buddha, So be it, world-honored one. If good men and good women wish to know the state of Buddhahood, they should know that it is not a state of the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, or the mind. Nor is it a state of material forms, sounds, scents, tastes, textures, or mental objects. World Honored One, the non-state is the state of Buddhahood. This being the case, what is the state of supreme unsurpassable enlightenment as attained by the Buddha? Okay, so let's stop there so we know what's being spoken about, right? Pretty straightforward. Um, A quick quick anecdote that I don't think I've ever shared this with you, and I think because we're doing a a Mahayana Sutra and we have the timeline up, this will be interesting. So if you read all the sutras, especially if you read all the Pali suttas, all the kind of Theravada texts, and this happened. Scholars went through, they read all the sutras, and they said, wow, the Buddha gave more talks at Anathapindika's park, the Mango Grove, the Jetta Grove, he gave more talks 
in Shravasti, Anathapadika's part, than anywhere else. He stayed there X number of nights. And then he stayed here X number of nights and here. And then people start to put together a biography of the Buddha based on this. And then he was here and then he was here and he was here and all of that. Right? Create a whole history of Buddhism based on these texts. And then something funny happens that in, I think it was maybe the 80s or 90s. I'm not exactly sure when this, when this happened. But a scholar found an interesting little, not a sutra, found an interesting little um, text to monks. Who, and actually it was a text written for reciter monks, monks who were reciters of sutras. And it was sort of a, a kind of mini Vinaya, if you will, on reciting sutras you know, things not to eat before you recite a sutra. The Chinese have a whole thing about not eating these five bitter herbs before you recite a sutra. Um, <laughs> all these different things. And then it has this interesting part. And it says, and if you forget where the sutra takes place, it's okay to say it took place at Shravasti. <laughs> it's awesome. But what does that say about our history, where the Buddha gave more talks in and out the Vedika's part than anywhere else? Well, no wonder he gave more talks there than anywhere else, right? But that says a lot about Buddhism, where they're like, the historicity of this is not the important part, right? Like, if you get it wrong and say he was here and he was there, that is not a, and you know, that's not the point. So, interesting that he takes that this also takes place there. This sutra takes place there, though probably allegorically, because Anathapindika's park is where the Buddha shot fire and water out of his body, and where he performed all kinds of other miracles. So, miraculousness and Anathapindika's park kind of go hand in hand. What, what kind of park is it? A mango grove, not a park park, a uh, like a. They don't mean what we mean. Well, they kind of do and kind of don't. I mean, not, you know, and not entirely like Olmsted and, and the Central Park and that type of manner, you know, manufactured park, but it's made to look natural where you're really just delineating the, the, the edges of it or something. Yeah, but it's a mango grove. And the, the idea was actually that this really rich guy, Jetta, had a mango grove. And the this guy, Pindika, who was the... Buddha's number one donor wanted to purchase the mango grove and to give it to the, the Sangha and the bhikkhus and all of that to hang out on. And apparently the story is, is that, the, that Jetta, who was a guy, he said, yeah, I'll give it to you for all, I'll give it to you for the amount of coins it takes for you to uh, cover the entire floor of the grove in coins. And apparently Anathapandika did it. That's the story, by the way. No, that's Donna. That's Donna. That's why he's the, the, the considered the foremost of giving or that, that type of giving. Okay, so we're there in the miraculous Jetta Grove, right? And interestingly enough, again, this is sort of like mixing it from our, all our sutras we were doing last month. He's there with 1,000 monks, 10,000 bodhisattvas, and many gods of the realm of desire, and gods of the realm of form. So if you remember last week, we were spending a lot of time on the realm of desire, realm of form, and then we were trying to push it into the formless realm. 
But I don't even know if I mentioned that in those three realms, including the realm of desire, there's gods floating all around in Buddhism. Like they, and in this, they've come to hear the Dharma. Right? So that's interesting that there's all these gods of various realms there. Interestingly, the Bodhisattva Mahasattva Sugana are there. And then the Buddha says just point blank, hey, explain to everybody what Buddhahood is. <laughs> and Manjur Shri's like, you got it. Right? It's not a state of the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, or mind. And it's nothing to do with the visible form, sense, smells, taste, touch, or even mind objects or thoughts. Right? World honor one, this or the non-state is the state of Buddhahood. And this should actually ring quite clear to people that came last uh, month where the whole project of those meditations was to get the focus of your attention down to only one object and then start letting even the, the various qualities of that object go until you were in a non-state of no eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, or mind. So this is playing off of that, that idea, right? So, but then the Buddha says to Manjushri, or no, actually after Manjushri says that, he says to the Buddha, so Buddhahood is a non-state. This being the case, what is the state of supreme, unsurpassable enlightenment? Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi. What? What is the state of Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi as attained by the Buddha? Now, if you've read the Vajra Sutra, otherwise known as the Diamond Sutra, you would know that the elder Shibuti, who, by the way, is also in this sutra, interestingly, if you've read the Diamond Sutra, you know it was Shibuti who asked the Buddha, what's Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi? That is that sutra. The sutra where Shibuti asked the Buddha, what's Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi? That's called the Diamond Sutra or the Vajra Sutra. The sutra where the Buddha says to Manjushri, hey, what is Buddhahood? And then Manjushri asks the Buddha, and yeah, what is the supreme unsurpassable enlightenment that you have attained, that the Buddha has attained? All right. And the Buddha says, it is a state of emptiness because all views are equal. It is a state of signlessness because all signs are equal. It is a state of wishlessness because the three realms are equal. It is a state of non-action because all actions are equal. It is the state of the unconditioned because all conditioned things are equal. Okay, and then Manjushri's got some questions about all of that. So the Buddha says, Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi is an unconditioned state uh, emptiness, signlessness, wishlessness, and non-action. It's helpful to know that in the Mahayana tradition, emptiness, signlessness, and wishlessness are called the three doors of liberation. There we have also this door metaphor, a, a passage to move from one to the other. So... Well, I mean, Manchester asks, so any questions though? If, if you're a little puzzled, it, it, you're, you're meant to be. This sutra, the way these sutras work is that they start off really dense. And then as you go along, they, they, they flesh it out and flesh it out. All right? Because in many ways, 
you know, they're written in a narrative style where they kind of do this. But then Manjushri asks, we're of honor one. What is the state of the unconditioned? Some of you may have had that same question, right? The Buddha said, the absence of thought is the state of the unconditioned. Manjushri said, we're of honor one. If the states of the unconditioned and so forth are the state of Buddhahood, and the state of the unconditioned is the absence of thought, then on what basis is the state of Buddhahood expressed? If there's no such basis, then there's nothing that can be said. And since there's nothing to be said, nothing can be expressed. Therefore, we're on one, the state of Buddhahood is inexpressible in words. Okay. Is everybody okay with this idea of conditioned and unconditioned? This is a very like important idea in in this and in Buddhism. But the basic idea here is that I've drawn my little picture here. You got your eyes, your ears, your nose, your tongue, the body, and the brain. Right? Those are the six sense organs corresponding to six sense data that come from the world, right? Sights, sounds, smells, tastes, right? They come, are processed, right? And the idea is, is that all of that, anything within what is called the 18 realms, the six sense bases, the six sense objects, and the consciousness that arise when they get together, all 18 realms, everything's conditioned. Conditioned in the sense that it is dependent upon something to be having that experience. Meaning, we are all now, if, well, not, but we're, most of us having the experience of seeing a bowl, right? I'm holding up a bowl and we're all having an experience of seeing the bowl and your seeing this bowl is conditioned on this. Because watch, you, do you see the bowl anymore? Oh, right, because it's conditional. So there's conditionality, meaning the condition, there's conditionality meaning that, Meaning what's going on in our senses is dependent upon the world. And if you take those sensory stimuli away, you don't have the thing anymore. But then we talk about everything being conditioned in the sense of, or I always use an example like, am I tall or am I short? Well, it depends, right? You, I would need to have somebody next to me. And if they were taller than me, I would be the short guy. But if there was all of a sudden a smaller person next to me, I'd be the tall guy. So me being tall or short is conditional, right? If, you, if I were to stand up here all night, I could lay out how everything in our world, every experience, every idea, every concept, every everything is conditional. Everything depends on something else to be understood as that, right? My classic example of, of conditioning is this one, what is that? What is that, right? If I do that, and now I ask you, what is that? Now you know, but you know because that told you. And if you really want to understand the magic of dependent origination, pay attention to that letter. Oh! Oh, you mean what this is, is dependent on what's next to it. 
It's not the number one or the letter I. It's neither. But if it's next to an eight, or what I understand to be an eight, then it's a one. But if I do that and get rid of the eight, and it turns into an S, it becomes a one. So what it is, is dependent on that. But of course, the same is true for that. Because just squiggly little lines are not necessarily S's. Now, of course, what's interesting about this example is, is that we have a straight line and a crooked line. And a straight line and a crooked line create what is. They create what is. That play of, of discrimination, discernment, create reality, right? That's all conditioned. So I'm giving you the, like, the conditional, like, air conditioning is, is conditioning. It's called air conditioning for a reason. It's conditioned. The air in this room is conditioned, right? And it's conditional on that giant apparatus. So that's conditionality. But also me being tall or short or a male, depends on a woman, all of that, right? That's all conditional. And then even the, the real nuts and bolts of our world and language and all that is conditional. The, when, when the Buddha asked, or when Manjushri asked the Buddha, or whoever asked whoever, what is the state of Buddhahood? He says it is a non-state. No eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, or even mind thinking about something. It is a state of emptiness, signlessness, and wishlessness. Those are unconditioned. And so what we're talking about in Buddhism with like ideas like nirvana. Sorry, I got lots. I got lots. <laughs> so with Buddhahood or Sambodhi or just Bodhi, with enlightenment, Buddhahood, nirvana, all these things, they're understood to be unconditioned. They're not conditional on anything. They don't depend on anything else. And really quickly, I just want to remind everybody what the Buddha is talking about or one aspect of what the Buddha is talking about here is, is that if your joy, happiness, and delight in this world is dependent upon the objects of it, so your joy is dependent upon this, the problem with that is that when I take away the thing, oh, but my joy's gone now. Because my joy was dependent on the thing that I was seeing or holding or smelling, tasting or touching or thinking about. Buddhism is this uh, doorway, a Dharma door, to what I call unconditional happiness. A, a joy, a delight that is not dependent on anything. That's why it's joyful. This is not dependent on anything. So the reason why the Buddhists and Manjushri and everybody's like the unconditioned. Let's get into the unconditioned. This is, that's the understanding of enlightenment and again nirvana. Okay, everybody good unconditioned? Unconditioned. There's a lot more to say about that, especially the emptiness, signlessness, and wishlessness. He says, regarding these three, the Buddha says that this state of Buddhahood, Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi, it is a state of emptiness because all drishti, all views are equal. Okay? Now, that's a little complex, but to use my example of the I and the S here, or the one and the eight, 
if, if you were with me on the 1 and the 8 and the I and the S, when I throw this thing up and ask you what it is, and you know now, you, the, the proper answer of what is that? Well, emptiness. It's an empty vessel waiting for you to throw a bunch of ideas on, right? But the actual nature of any phenomena is what is called empty or emptiness in that way. Is it a one or better put, this, this letter I here, right? What is the nature of this letter I? Is it really the letter I? Or is it just conveniently next to something that my mind construes as the letter S and therefore I think it's the letter I? So insofar as it's the letter I, no, 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 it's empty. So conceptually it's empty and we can go further with the emptiness. But I want to just leave it there. That what we're talking about is, is that when the Buddha says the unconditioned, it's emptiness because all views are equal. What I want you to think about is the mind that sees that as a number or a letter, that's a view. That's a view. Like, so we don't have to get all philosophical about drishtis tonight. It's just actually like, what do you think that is? And again, if you understand that it is the conditioning of the mind that sees a number or a letter. There are no letters or numbers on the board, I promise you. There, there's letters and numbers in your mind that you've been conditioned to think about, and all of this is sort of prompting that, but I haven't written anything on the board. Right? So that speaks to this emptiness when all views are equal in that way. Everybody okay with that? Again, I'm kind of actually cheating. I'm giving you the answers before the text, but it's so that I want you to really hear the beauty of the way the text delivers them. Right? So then the, the Buddha says, it is a state of signlessness because all signs are equal. This uh, idea of a sign is a uh, namita or a lakshana. Both terms are used. They kind of refer to slightly different things. But within the world of talking about signs, so what a sign or a namita or a lakshana is in Buddhism is a quality or a characteristic. We talk about this every night. And the idea that the way that we understand what anything is, a cup, a bowl, a table, or a chair, a person, a human being, whatever it is, you, we understand what everything is, is based on its qualities or characteristics. Like if there was a noise outside... We could determine whether it's a car, a motorcycle, a bicycle, a human being, a duck quacking, because it would have the signs or the characteristics of that. And we'd be like, oh, that sounds like a gas burning engine on a tiny little two-wheel device. The determination of all of that is based on signs, marks, characteristics, or qualities. This practice is one of understanding, just like the significance of the letters and the numbers, understanding that even the qualities of things are projections out, not the receiving of information in in that way. And so this unconditioned state is when all signs become equal. 
So now it's like tall or short, tall and short are equal in the realm of the unconditioned, in the realm of Buddhahood. And then it is a state of wishlessness because the three realms are equal. So this is really a, a moment where we take a, a, a big departure from our Theravada a world in that way. So what this is saying when he says, no, no, in this state of Buddhahood, it's a state of wishlessness or desirelessness because the three realms are equal. The idea was is that, again, we started off in this realm of desire, the kamadhatu, right? And if you could escape all three in that sense, that's nirvana. This was the Theravada project. This is terrible. <laughs> this, the realm of desire and the suffering of it, this is terrible. This, eh, it's like, it's better than that, but it still has its problems. This is pretty good, but Nirvana's the best, right? Right, <laughs> <laughs> that's Nirvana. So that <laughs> when the Buddha says that the but Buddhahood is a state of wishlessness because the three realms are equal. So for a Buddha, for Buddha eyes, for somebody in the realm of Buddhahood, the three realms are equal. That I'm not going to spoil that one because that's the entire gist of this sutra. So you're just going to have to roll with me on that one. The fourth one, this little, this sutra adds a fourth door of liberation here. It is a state of non-action because all actions are equal. And the fourth, it's a state of unconditioned because all conditioned things are equal. Okay. Questions? You want, you want to know about action, non-action? Yeah. Uh, is there any to the word equal that just seems like uh, I'm not quite sure where that's going so, or is it just duh, equal is equal no no so like with all dharma you know it's complex so we're gonna I'm gonna give you something to start with but this is not the whole story uh, uh, the last Last month, I used an example of uh, my, uh, if I had my dearest possession in, in life, the, the bowl that my grandmother gave me on her deathbed, oh, right? this precious bowl, right? So this idea in Buddhism of clinging or attachment, I, I use this example to illustrate what I think the Buddhists are talking about in terms of the problem with clinging and, and desire and all of that. Imagine my grandmother's bowl here that I value so much, right? How do you think I would feel if I went and put it out on the corner of Folsom and 24th and then came back here? <laughs> how, do you how do you think I'm going to be feeling, right? A little anxious, a little worried? You bet, right? I mean, you do it. Take your most precious object of this world and put it up on the corner of 24th. Come on back here. And see how you feel regarding, oh my God, somebody's going to take it, somebody's going to defile it, da-da-da, right? Now, let me just give you this one. Rando, total rando bowl. 
First time you've ever seen it, right? Go put that on the corner and come back. Are you going to be all freaked out? Are you going to be all worried? That's attachment. (laughs) That's desire. That's what the Buddhas are talking about. Our disposition towards the things of this world, of which we have a variety. Some we hate, some we like, some we press are guarded, all of that. What about equal? What if I actually viewed this bowl and my grandmother's one as exactly the same? And even a bigger bowl as exactly the same. What if I had exactly the same disposition towards every object in this world? That would be equivalent to kind of upeksha, equality, and the wishlessness. This is what I mean, is that my grandmother's bowl, I had a wish that nobody would harm it. I had a wish that it would last forever. That other bowl that I just threw up there, I had no wishes towards that bowl. Take it. You, oh, you needed a bowl? Good, I'm glad. I'm glad somebody took that bowl, right? So what if you, again, could apply that same non-desire to everything? That would be the inconceivable state of Buddhahood, a state of wishlessness <laughs> towards the objects of the world. And again, I just want you to kind of see the Dharmic wisdom. It, feel it in your gut, <laughs> about how some things you put out there make you feel and how other things you don't have. And the Buddha's like, yeah, that's your choice. That's, that's it. That's it. There's, the Buddha always described, there's, suffer, there's physical suffering, which we can't do anything about that. That's, like, that's real and to be dealt with. But the, the mental suffering, the, the, oh, that we can do something about. In fact, that's what we can do something about. Would it be fair to say that um, when we're talking about something, these, you know, all these aspects which are we deem equal, that that doesn't mean they're at zero. Like they can have some <laughs> level. I, you, maybe you're getting. There. Yeah, I'm not exactly. The suture will get there, but but it's actually going to get even crazier before we get there. So I want to tell you now, <clears throat> it's a good way of saying it. We're not putting everything at zero value. We're putting it all at the same value. As a preliminary, as a starting point. Yeah. Mm. I'm wondering, is there in Buddhism, in any schools, more they focus more on, not an attachment, but basically on on the non-self and uh, non-dualism? Because apparently they say like, the, the state you're describing is without attachment. I'm wondering, like, wouldn't it be like more, more true to see there's no one really to be even attached to, or nothing to be attached to? So, well, great segue. That's actually how to understand non-action. <clears throat> that the idea of action of like, hey, look what I just did. That can only happen with the attached view of a self doing something. And actually, if you really let go of that. <clears throat> you will see how there's this kind of wild confluence of events maybe or something, but no action in a way. So just a little taste of that. And the suture goes where you want to go in that way. Let's dive a little deeper, shall we? So just just now that we have a very nice 
feeling for the unconditioned, right? Not of this world, totally separate, not conditional, dependent on anything, right? Manjushri asks, World Honor, what is the state of the unconditioned? The Buddha says, it's the absence of thought is the state of the, un- of the unconditioned, the absence of thought. But then Manjushri asks this really interesting question, which he says, World Honor, what? If the states of the unconditioned and so forth are the state of Buddhahood, so if all of those are the state of Buddhahood, and the state of the unconditioned is the absence of thought, then on what basis is the state of Buddhahood expressed? If there's no such basis, then there's nothing to be said, and since there's nothing to be said, nothing can be expressed. Therefore, what are when the state of Buddhahood is inexpressible in words? <clears throat> That's Manjushri, Bodhisattva. The Buddha says to Manjushri, hey, Manjushri, where should the state of Buddhahood be sought? Where should you look for it? Where should you look for the state of Buddhahood? Manjushri answers why it should be sought right in the kleshas. Right, this sutra translates as defilements. I'm never a fan of defilements for kleshas. The three poisons, the word klesha means a coloring, like a coloring of the mind, which I'll talk about in a second. <clears throat> so if I, if I keep using this word defilement, Know that they're talking about the three poisons, greed, hatred, and delusion. There's no original sin here. There's nothing like that. It's, we have <clears throat> some mental hangups. So Manjushri says, Buddhahood? Oh, it should be sought right in the kleshas, right in the defilements of sentient beings. Why? Because by nature, the kleshas, the defilements of sentient beings, are inapprehensible. Realization of this is beyond the comprehension of the Shravakas and the Pratekya Buddhas. Therefore, it is called the state of Buddhahood. Not Arhathood, not Bodhisattvahood, but Buddhahood, because it's inconceivable by the Shravakas and the Pratekya Buddhas, the solitary Buddhas. This is the gist of the sutra. That, And, and again, I'll just give you the, the sneak peek. If, if my sales pitch was successful, you know, ooh, tell me more about this unconditioned. Tell me more about the state of Buddhahood. So if we're like into this idea of the unconditioned and Magistri or Buddha or whoever is like, yeah, so where, where can I get that? Right here in the condition. And what this is responding to, again, is a kind of escapist form of like that life's better over in the formless realm. Life's better over there. Life's better up in the Brahma heavens. Life, this is, no, 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 no. Right here is the practice. Right in the defilements. So this is, I, I point these things out because this is in dialogue with these early sutras in that way. Jennifer. I'm sorry, who, who asked the question of Manjushri? <laughs> the Buddha asked, Manjushri, where should the state of Buddhahood be sought? Manjushri answers, it should be sought right in the kleshas of sentient beings. And why? Because the nature of kleshas or defilements of sentient beings is, is inapprehensible. It's like the letter I. It's like everything I've just been talking about. Like even the kleshas have the same empty nature. Right? So that's Realization of this is beyond the comprehension of Shravakas and Pratekya Buddhas. Therefore, it is called the state of Buddhahood. The Buddha asked Manjushri, 
So does the state of Buddhahood increase or decrease? Like, does it get more? Does it get less? Like, do you slip into it, slip out of it? Do you kind of have a little Buddhahood and then get a lot of Buddhahood? And if you have a lot of Buddhahood, can you shrink back to a little Buddhahood? So he's asking, does it increase or decrease? It neither increases nor decreases. The Buddha asked. That was Manjushri's answer. It neither increases nor decreases. The Buddha asked, how can one comprehend the basic nature of the kleshas of all sentient beings? How can one comprehend the basic nature of the three poisons of sentient beings? How can one understand these three poisons if they're all equal? How? Come on, help me out here, Buddha. Right? How can one comprehend the basic nature of the defilements of all sentient beings? The Buddha said, just as the state of Buddhahood neither increases nor decreases, so by their nature, the defilements neither increase nor decrease. The Buddha asked, what is the basic nature of the defilements? Manjushri answered, the basic nature of the defilements of sentient beings, the basic nature of the kleshas, is the basic nature of the state of Buddhahood. We're a wonder one. If the nature of the defilements, the kleshas, were different from the nature of the state of Buddhahood, then it could not be said that the Buddha abides in the equality of all things. It is because the nature of the defilements, the kleshas, is the very nature of the state of Buddhahood that the Tathagata is said to abide in equality. The Buddha asked further, in what equality do you think the Tathagata abides? Manjushri answered, as I understand it, the Tathagata abides in exactly the same equality in which those sentient beings who act with greed, hatred, and delusion abide. The Buddha asked, in what equality do those sentient beings who act with the three poisons abide? They abide in the equality of emptiness, signlessness, and wishlessness. The Buddha asked, Manjushri, in this crazy realm of emptiness you're talking about, how could there be desire, hatred, and delusion? Or greed, hatred, and ignorance? Manjushri answered, right in that which exists, there is emptiness, wherein greed, hatred, and delusion are also found. The Buddha asked, in what existence is there emptiness? And Manjushri replied, emptiness is said to exist only in words and language. Because there is emptiness, there are greed, hatred, and delusion. The Buddha has said, monks, non-arising, non-conditioning, non-action, and the non and non-origination all exist. If these did not exist, then one could not speak of arising, of conditioning, of action and origination. Therefore, monks, because there are non-arising, non-conditioning, non-action, and non-origination, one can speak of the existence of arising, conditioning, action, and origination. Similarly, world under one, if there were no emptiness, signlessness, or wishlessness, one could not speak of greed, hatred, and delusion, or any other idea. 
the Buddha said, man, Shri. If this is the case, then it must be just as you said earlier, that one who abides in the kleshas abides in emptiness. Right. I'll stop there. You lost me a long time ago. Hmm? <laughs> we'll do it again, but I just... Questions, ideas before I attempt? Please. Two things came up. Um, I'm just going to throw this out yep. there. Um, it's kind of like that thing, well, what is lightness? What is darkness? Well, darkness is the absence of light. Um, that was one way, like, my literal mind was trying to grasp this. And the other thing, like, as you were talking, like, I have this image of, like, a Caucasian man, an Asian man, an African-American man, um, an Italian woman, like, so in the uncon... No, I'm not even going to go there. That's your wrong. But just kind of like they're all human beings. Um, so maybe that is the unconditioned. But because of those conditioned differences, and I'm just going to stop there. Mm -hmm. So yep. that's me trying to comprehend this. Yeah, yeah. Okay, one more thing. Yeah. But I do like the idea of, or suggestion of um, practicing the unconditioned states or qualities in the conditioned thing. Like, it's just kind of like, oh, if you want peace, like, you don't just, like, go up to the mountains and hang out there. Um, you know, you cultivate that in the midst of the circus you know that's like that's where you get that rich like oh that's peace um and i'll just stop mm -hmm. right there yeah thank you absolutely your last comment absolutely if there's a you know the, the, these sutras are always very complex and always operating on many different levels it's like very 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 profound existential levels about what the world is made out of and the mind and all of that but then also very practical like not like advice or suggestions for practice but very practical ideas like yeah you don't have to go on top of a mountain it's right here there's nothing more conditioned or unconditioned on the mountaintop than right here so it's all available for practice in that way but it does sort of take a more fortified self to go out into the the muck and the mire and do it versus a nice quiet zendo with the nice smell and all of that. So, but on that note, I did want you to know that a sutra like this, which is probably my scholarly historical knowledge, definitely before the year zero, this sutra was existent. And I say that just because I know of other sutras that exist from before the year zero that are talking very much along the same lines. So all of that. And so this sutra from that long ago is addressing a kind of um, that escapism. But I also, this sutra that's going to be talking about the defilements as being Buddhahood, this is, a sutra like this is what um, paves the way for Tantric Buddhism, Vajrayana Buddhism, where you actually are like, 
oh, if the defilements are Buddhahood, then give me some more of that. No, I'm just kidding. But the idea is, is that you could then use the defilements, actively use the defilements, actually use sex, actually use intoxicants, actually use the defilements for Buddhahood. That's, so Vajrayana, Tantric, Buddhist practice could not have happened had Manjushri not expounded this amazing sutra. And this is just, again, it paves the way for all of that because all this is doing is putting this equality, like I was saying to Dean, about just the equality. Mountaintop, Folsom and 24th, equal in that way. Not quite the Vajrayana yet where we're going to go like use the, the, the grime on the curb of 24th Street to really you know, get tantric. Like, not that level, but again, this is, allows for that. Because this is radical Buddhism to say that the defilements are Buddhahood. The whole project of the Theravada was, no, no, these are bad. Get rid of them. Then, you, then you're Buddha. It's like, no, no. There's something really interesting going on. On your first note, though, about the lightness and the darkness, I did actually also want to respond. Uh, oh, I can't, though. I didn't realize how late it was. <laughs> Just got started. I know. So there's this, um, all last month, I did a lot of talking about space, this Buddhist idea of space. And my first order of business was to let everybody know it's not outer space, it's not black void space, that in Buddhism and Indian thinking, Indian philosophy, akasha or space is this really profound, weird property of this world because in Buddhism what space is is like the space between things and it's the space between things that allows me to know what that is versus what this is because if they were occupying the same space by definition they would be the same thing so space is this weird quality and it's very, in Buddhism and Indian thinking, you know, they, they, they hammer this in. Space is not something. I can't grab space. And I can't, uh, the, like the space in this bowl, I, it's not transferable. I can't, it's not a thing. If you're thinking of it as a thing, you missed it, right? It's a, a weird quality of this world that allows for this world to exist, but is not like of this world. Right? There's many a sutra that say Buddhahood, emptiness, the unconditioned are like space. It's not that they are space, but they're like space. Meaning that I need space to just figure out the, what this world is. So if you understand that, hands maybe, I got this. okay, good enough. What they're talking about then is that space allowing for objects. The three poisons allowing for Buddhahood in that exact way where he's like, yeah, they don't exist. They're like space, but we need them. Or <laughs> to reiterate in, in a better, clearer Buddha words, word on them. If the nature of these kleshas were different from the state, from the nature of the state of Buddhahood, then it could not be said that the, that the Buddha abides in the equality of all things. It is because the nature of the defilements is the very nature of the state of Buddhahood that the Tathagata is said to abide in equality. 
The Buddha asked Manjushri further, in what equality do you think the Tathagata abides? Manjushri says, as I understand it, the Tathagata abides in exactly the same equality in which those sentient beings who act with desire, hatred, or greed, hatred, and delusion abide. The Buddha asked, in what equality do those sentient beings who act with the three poisons abide? They abide in the equality of emptiness, signlessness, and wishlessness, and space for them to exist at all, right? Just let's tack that on there so we know what we're talking about, right? So we need emptiness, signlessness, and wishlessness for there to be, as he says, for there to be, or emptiness is said to exist only in words and language, just like space, I just said it existed, but it's this weird property, right? So emptiness is said to exist only in words and language, Manjushri says. Because there is emptiness, there is greed, hatred, and delusion. The Buddha has said, monks, the non-arising of things, non-conditioned, non-action, non-origination, they all exist. If these did not exist, then one could not speak of arising, conditioning, action, and origination. Therefore, monks, because there are non-arising, non-conditioning, non-action, non-origination, one can speak of the existence of arising, conditioning, action, and origination. Similarly, World on One, if there were no emptiness, signlessness, or wishlessness, one could not speak of greed, hatred, and delusion, or any other idea. The Buddha said, Manjushri, if this is the case, then it must be just like you said at the beginning of this, that one who abides in the defilements abides in emptiness. Manjushri said, world honored one, if a meditator seeks emptiness apart from the defilements, his search will be in vain. How could there be an emptiness that differs from the defilements? If he contemplates the defilements as emptiness, he is said to be engaged in right practice. And if you haven't picked up on it already, this is Manjushri's Heart Sutra. This is point for point the Heart Sutra. Neither increases nor decreases, is neither defiled nor pure. We're going through it point by point, but in a Manjushri style, where it's going to be much more. And less, it's going to be less compassionate in that way. It's going to be a little harder. It's going to, you know, but. Can you repeat that last line? If he contemplates the defilements as emptiness, he is said to be engaged in right practice. Samya, right? Your, your noble eightfold path, right action, right speech, right livelihood. Manjushri just said, this is right action. Right? If he contemplates the kleshas, greed, hatred, and delusion as emptiness, he is said to be engaged in the right practice. The Buddha asked Manjushri, do you detach yourself from the defilements or do you abide in them? Manjushri said, all the kleshas, all defilements are equal in reality. I have realized that equality through right practice. Therefore, I neither detach myself from the defilements, nor do I abide in them. If a monk or a Brahmin claims that he has overcome passions, but he sees other beings as defiled, then he's fallen into the two extreme views. And what are those two? 
One is the view of eternalism, maintaining that the defilements are real and that they exist. And the other is the view of nihilism, maintaining that the defilements are not real and do not exist. World honor one, he who practices rightly sees no such things as self or other, existence or non-existence. And why? Because that person clearly comprehends all dharmas. Real question, uh, the nihilism thing, that's also in there. Yep. I think time, eternalism, nihilism, yep. and stuff. That's really interesting. Where, where is it coming from? The 62 views. If you remember the lesson on the 62 views, there was eternalists yeah. and the non-eternalists. That whole chart is kind of the eternalists and nihilists. But did they use the same language, or this is a modern language to try to translate that? In all of the, not all the sutras, but that 62 view argument with all of them eventually just gets reduced down to the shortening of those two to stand for the whole kit and caboodle. And it's basically like there's two ways you could do this. You could think it's all meaningless and nothingness, or you can think we're all bound for heaven and glory. And Buddhism is neither nor in that way. Yeah, I'd actually like to read that section again. So, <clears throat> the Buddha asked Manjushri, so do you detach yourself from the defilements or do you abide in them? All right, great question. Manjushri said, all the defilements, all the clashes are equal in reality. I've realized that equality through right practice. Therefore, I neither detach myself from the defilements nor do I abide in them. Good answer, Manjushri. If a monk or a Brahmin claims that he has overcome passions but sees other beings as defiled, he's fallen in. He's got the problem, right? He hasn't overcome jack squat if he's doing that, right? <laughs> right? That's the idea of there. World on one, he who practices rightly sees no such things as self or other, as existence or non-existence. And why? Because he clearly comprehends all dharmas. So again, if we go back to that 60, those 62 views from that one talk, all of those were predicated on self and other. That was the whole point of that, is that the whole, like it doesn't matter whether it's Newton or Einstein or science or this or that or that, it's all predicated on a self. And as soon as you have a self, you have the other. And from the Buddhist point of view, that's what gets us into this big, giant mess. Is the self-other game that's totally arbitrary, totally just, hey, how about here? How about that? You're you, I'm me. Good luck, buddy. Right? Yes? Um... So this whole like uh, contemplating the clutches as emptiness, mm -hmm. I'm kind of confused on that. Well, I don't think we're going to get there. He gets there. He gets there. Okay. He gets there. He gets her, but not fast enough for you. <laughs> 
So, uh, what's uh, <clears throat> yeah? No, I mean, I want to finish. This is a great, a great, like, if I can do it, I got it. I can do it. All right. So, this is an example I've used in the past. So some of you have heard it, but I think it's a good one for, for this talk. So imagine I have a, a, a nice, clean sheet of white paper in front of me, right? Not a mark on it. And now, for this analogy's sake, I want you to imagine that I have a, a pin. And I'm going to puncture this sheet of paper. And what this pin is going to represent is a samskara, uh, a mental conditioning or a thought or an idea, right? So I go, oh, there's a thought, there's an idea, there's an idea. And eventually, like, oh, I had that thought, then I had that thought, and I'm thinking about this, this, condition this way, right? So after enough time, you know, I've got this sheet of paper with all these holes representing every thought I've had, every conditioned thought, every samskara and all of that, Right? Imagine, like a, <clears throat> you know, like a, a shadow puppet theater, I had a light, and I blasted it through that sheet of paper, and the shadow got cast on the wall, right? And that shadow would have all the marks of my mind. So it would be like, oh, look, there's my mind, right? Oh, look, here's your mind. What this is, is a perfect representation of your defiled mind. It couldn't be any other way. And if you are kind of a good Buddhist and understanding this emptiness, signlessness, wishlessness, like kind of unconditioned nature of reality, then, like, meaning that you don't, you don't keep mistaking this for reality, right? You don't keep chasing it. You've, you've had the realization, oh, snap, this is just a representation of my mind state. So if you've had that realization, so you're not going to go grasping at it anymore, you can take that step back and be like, oh, wow, look at my defilements. Look it. This is a perfect reflection of my mind. There's this thing in, in it's an analogy that I use a lot with my finger and a shadow. Right? So everybody see my yeah. shadow, right? There's this amazing thing that happens. Boom, do you see that? <laughs> do one more time. Ready? My this finger's here, that finger's over there, right? Oh, it happened again. Every single time they they line up perfectly, right? It's almost like they're dependently originated on each other, right? <laughs> <laughs> so that's so the the idea is like, wow, there's that's perfect. It's it's a perfect lining up. So there's a way in which this is a perfect lining up with my defiled mind. And so if I really wanted to work on my mind, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's how the, the greed, hatred, and dushan, the three pleasures, are the site of Buddhahood. They're the place of Buddhahood. Because dependent to, this, this amazing thing is, you know, Buddhism's like, this is amazing that, that Dependent origination is happening. It's, it's like beautiful in a way that it's so seamlessly perfect. It's kind of the bane of our existence too, but it's beautiful at the same time. 
And so again, if you can not keep pursuing what you think is not you and recognize everything as being a projected reflection of your mind state, now we might get closer to what they're talking about. Maybe? Yep. By virtue of being observed. Yes. And so I don't see how the next step that you're talking about, how defilement somehow is some sort of awakening or something. It's the potential for it in that way. So rather than the Theravada, it's like, oh, I got this defilement. As soon as I can get no, rid no, of that no, defilement. No, it's not, oh, I have this defilement because that is another defilement. Very good. So it's not, ah, oh, I have this defilement. It's, I have a defilement and I observe it and I observe how it works in my body and as a result of observing it <coughs> or immediately, yep. these things with this defilement becomes less and occurs less often. And I'm, I'm just not following so the, what you're saying. The idea is, is that, especially if we want to keep contrasting with the Theravada, is that the, con- the Theravadas, they believed very much in the reality of these defilements. Right. Very much in the reality of the defilements. And, in a certain way, very much in the reality of the self afflicted with that defilement. What the Mahayana sort of has a problem with is all of this reinforcing of the reality of the self and the reality of the defilement. Whereas what they're talking about with the unconditioned, what they're talking about with emptiness, is that the defilement, its nature, it actually doesn't even exist really at all. What it is, is a projection of the mind. And so if it could be understood correctly... A resentment, a defilement. A resentment exists in my mind. Yeah. It does not exist on a coffee table. It's not something we can put there. And it's not something anyone would know about it unless I tell them about it. It doesn't exist anywhere else. It doesn't exist at all, is what this is saying. It doesn't exist at all. (laughs) If it doesn't exist, there's a reaction to it. Okay. I just don't understand (laughs) what you're saying at all. I mean, the, the... it's the, I mean, it's the emptiness talk, Ed, that we've had zillions of times. And it's about the empty nature of all phenomena. And this kind of Mahayana thing that it's like you could have immediate enlightenment if you realize the emptiness of all things. It might take you lifetimes if you're just working on the defilement, working on the anger, working on the whatever. Because you believe in its reality. And it's like, oh, I'm, I'm 75% less angry today. Oh, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. 75%. So, really, I think that, um, that, okay, well, let's use a different word say it's an aversion. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they are real. <laughs> You're having one. No, this whole Mahayana thing, though, Ed, is that your, what was our latest defilement? What was it? 
aversion. The aversion is creating Ed. Ed thinks he's having aversion. The aversion creates the sense of Ed being averse to something. Do you see what is being said there? That's a Mahayana twist on the whole thing. That Ed comes into existence because of aversion. That's what Ed is, the, the accumulation of all of these things in that way. I know, I never mean to offend. I just want to leave you with this last great line that is this great, it's the, I mean, we're only a couple pages in, but the Buddha asks, Manjur Sri, to do all of this, what I'm, what we're we talking about, what should one rely upon for such right practice? Manjushri answers, he who practices rightly relies upon nothing. The Buddha asks, does he not practice according to the Eightfold Path? If he practices in accordance with anything, his practice will be conditioned. A conditioned practice is not one of equality. Why? Because it is not exempt from the arising, abiding, and perishing. All right, so I'll stop there. But let's end it with that idea that the practice, if done rightly, relies upon nothing. And that should be in absolute accordance with everything we just talked about in terms of the unconditioned. If you're going to do the right practice, it's not on anything. It's not conditioned. How do you do that? <laughs> you know, that's, that's another question. But that, that, that's the practice. That's good to know. And on that note, I'm going to call it night. Thank you all so much for coming today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm here next Sunday, and we're going to keep going on this because...